Just Sean. <laughs> oh, my. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sean Kapoff, and my, uh, I'm, uh, my wife is here, but that's not my wife. That's Elise. It's like my sister from another mister. Uh, no, my wife is here. My kids are here, too. And uh, if you try to do some kind of sense of contemplative prayer and you're interrupted by a kid screaming, that's my son. You're very welcome. Uh, we're training him on how to learn English. So far, screaming is the majority of it, but we'll get there. It's in time. It happens. Um, today, I want, Chuck asked me to speak um, this weekend, and today I wanted to just, well, from what I thought, okay, maybe I'll just share about what I've been doing. And what I've been doing uh, is I, I run an organization that provides families access to clean drinking water in uh, three different countries, in Vietnam, El Salvador, and Uganda. And uh, my previous past life, I uh, studied, wrote sermons, and delivered them. And a lot, actually. It was like a vending machine of sermons as I look back, just pumping them out like crazy. It's like, insert three days, next three days, just miss, keep, keep them coming. And uh, all of a sudden, when Chuck asked me, hey, can you come share about what God's put on your heart? I said, well, okay. And then all of a sudden, I had this, like, moment of, can I still do that? <laughs> I don't know if I can. Because I've, I've done it for 12 years, and there, literally in the 12-year span of, of teaching, um, there has only been two weeks that I've missed, like, it would be like two weeks span of not teaching, and then I'd be teaching for 12 years. And now it's been like two and a half months. And so for me, I'm like, wow, this is a weird space to be in. I don't really know. It's, but, but here I am, and I'm talking to you, and so let's, we'll see what happens. And basically what I want to share with you today, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've done and what we are doing. But more than just that, I kind of just want to share what's been on my heart lately, and maybe something within that. Uh, God will uh, speak to you about. I'm going to talk out of a passage in John chapter 11. You can open up to John 11 if you want. Um, in the meantime, I was walking the other day with my daughter, and we were getting nectar, which is really just an overpriced juice. But why would you ever want to clean your own juicer? So you go to nectar. That's why we do that. So we went to nectar, and we got done with getting our juice, and my daughter kind of I said, Sawyer, come with me, and, she, and she's almost four, so she's like, no, and then walks the other way. I'm like, ah, you are me, uh, just younger. I'm like, where are you going? Where are you going? What are you doing? And then she stops by this flower, looks at it, smells it, picks it off, and says, here you go, Daddy. Oh, I know. And I, I grabbed it, and I did that. I went, ah, and I smelt it, and then I looked at it, and then I had this moment of like, where did this, how did this all come about? Where did this flower come from? How did it originate? Now, that's a weird thought. Most of the time, people just go, what a beautiful flower. And my mind goes, how did that all happen? Now, I'm not a scientist, but I do know how some things kind of work. I know a word like photosynthesis, that's probably a part of it. Um, but I also know that things like that start from a seed, that there's this essence of life. It's then buried in the dirt. And then it's watered, and then stuff happens, and all of a sudden it begins to sprout from the ground. It begins to grow, 
and then beauty comes from it. And then that very essence of beauty, the purpose of that is to create more beauty and more plants so that more flowers are blooming and it's beautiful. And I thought, wow, isn't that like life? Life, death, new life, growth, beauty. That if you look at the overarching part of life, we believe, we trust in this narrative that we exist now, that we will one day die, but that death will not hold us down, that we'll have new life. And in that new body, in the new creation, we will be growing and expanding and encountering more beauty than we've ever before, right? But we also, as God has created us, we have those, that kind of overarching narrative and smaller narratives in our lives where we experience things on a small scale of life and then something happens Something dies, something changes. Something that once was there is no longer there. We are, in essence, buried. And over time, however long that time may be, new life is then birthed out of that. And something more beautiful and more dynamic begins to grow. That as we look back in the season of that burial, in the season of that death-like experience, we would not wish it to happen to anyone. But we look back and we see it from a whole another vantage point to the point of like, oh, wow. Wow. That was really cool. Now, um, there's another way of phrasing this kind of process. There's order, disorder, and reorder. Father Rohr talks a lot about that. He kind of takes that. I kind of took it and swung it this way with flowers, and he kind of puts it in a really neat package. That you have this life of order Something happens, something changes, you go off to college, you get married, you get divorced, you have a child, you lose a child, someone in your family dies, whatever. There's stuff that happens in our life that are gut-wrenching, and it creates chaos. We go from how this is life has should have been, and is, and then something happens, and disorder comes into play. Chaos begins to show up. And then over that time of chaos and disorder, there's something that begins to birth within us, something that resurrects within us, and reorder takes place. And so what I want to do is I want to share what life has been like, not just for me, but maybe for all of us, in the state of disorder. When we're in that state of burial. When we're in that state of like, is it always going to be like this? Is it always going to happen? Because in, Luke, or in John chapter 11, there are a few different people that are feeling that chaos, that disorder. In John chapter 11, there are a few people that are just at wit's end, and I feel like for many of us, we can relate to their feelings as they navigate this current situation in their own life. And the beauty of it is that Jesus is with all of them in it. And isn't that what we want? To know, at least in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the, the loss, in the midst of the emptiness, of the burial, don't we, don't we want to be resurrected? Isn't it comforting to know that we have God who is with us in those seasons? And if you trust him, he will resurrect you. So let's look a little bit more at that. Sound good? You with me? Here we go. John 11, 1. Now, just prior to this, Jesus has escaped from Judea because some people tried to capture him, potentially kill him, or stone him, which means throwing rocks. You've got to be clear, nowadays in California, that means rock throwing at you until you die, right? Okay, that's the kind of stoning. 
Verse 1 says this, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now just to kind of give you a little bit of a more color to what's happening here, Bethany uh, is translated to the house of the poor. So in essence, Mary, Martha, Lazarus live on the outskirts of, say, Jerusalem area in a place where the sick and the poor live. This is their place. It's like a hospice, so to speak. It's a commune of people that are sick and poor and in need of help. And the beauty of this, just right here, is that Jesus knows, three of them at least we know, really well. Which means that Jesus has frequently gone to the house of the poor to sit with them, to get to know them, to encourage them, to just maybe be with them, as he's so good at doing. Moving on, verse 4. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. In other words, God's going to take this situation and make it good. Verse 5. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected, Rabbi, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there's danger of stumbling because they have no light. Verse 11, then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, oh Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. And this is why I like to call them the disciples, because they're slow. (laughs) They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. For all those who are literal, when the metaphor comes into play, it blows their mind. What? There's a deeper meaning behind this? Yeah. So he had to tell them plainly, probably with a deep sigh, Lazarus is dead. Oh, gotcha. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Because in his mind, he already knows what he's about to do. Come, let's go see him. Verse 16, this is my favorite. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, so if you could just imagine, here are the disciples. Let's say Jesus is right over here. You look like a great Jesus. And uh, Thomas goes over here, walks over to the disciples and says, all right, Let's go too and die with Jesus. Like he's, he's sarcastic. He doesn't believe it. He's like, oh yeah, we're going to go back to the place we died? All right, let's go back too. Let's just go die with him, all right? Great, fantastic, wonderful. Now we all know Thomas has a nickname, right? Thomas the Doubter. Not just that, he's our sarcastic doubter. He's looking at us going like, yeah, right, Jesus. There's no way I can believe that. I'm not going to trust you in this season. I'm not going to trust you to do that. Let's just go back. We might as well just go back and go get ourselves killed. This is a a suicide mission. 
is doubting God in flesh. He's been with them for how long? And seen how many miracles, right? And he's doubting them. But yet, haven't we been like that before? Haven't we gone through seasons of time where we've questioned the existence of God? We've questioned religion. We've questioned spirituality. Like, is this actually happening? Maybe for some of us, we had someone who was sick, and we believed in prayer and healing, and we prayed. We did every mantra. We got oil from Israel. We did everything you could possibly fathom to do all that we can to make sure that God would heal that person, and then he didn't. And then all of a sudden, we get flooded with these emotions of, why didn't you? You can. I read about it. Why didn't it happen? And suddenly, what can happen is doubt begins to creep in, doesn't it? Or maybe for some of us, we have grown up as Christians. And then we go off to college. And a professor says something that is the exact opposite of what's in the Bible. And then he shows you scientific evidence of its existence and how that's wrong and this is right. And you're like... What? And something shifts in you. Something that once was there is now gone. It has now died, and doubt begins to enter in. There are seasons of this kind of disorder that begins to show up that many of us, like Thomas, can doubt and wrestle with it. And Thomas wrestles with it a lot, even when you look at the post resurrection of Jesus and how Thomas doubted that too which is a whole other separate subject but fascinating to read about because the reality is is your doubt is okay with Jesus it's all right <laughs> right he can handle it because he's not asking for certainty he's asking for trust let it go or maybe for some of us it's not doubt Maybe for some of us, we are a bit like Mary, and we're discouraged. Because it's too late. It's too late. You waited two days, bro. We sent you the letter at the right time, and you waited too long. Verse 17 says this, When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for how many days? Four days. That's important. Keep that in the back of your mind. Four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. And when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Martha did. But what did Mary do? Mary stayed in the house. Why? What's the point? Why do I need to go see him? She's discouraged. It's too late. You're too late, Jesus. It's done. Why do I need to go outside? Why do I need to make that happen? And maybe for some of us, that's where we're at right now in the season of life. We're discouraged. I'm never going to have someone that's going to love me how I need to be loved. My marriage is never going to be what I thought it would be. I'm going to always be in this dead-end job. I'm not talking about my personal life. I'm just saying in general. You're like, no, no. 
But there's these, these things, you know, that we, you know, that we begin to believe about us because whatever. It's just always going to be like this. I've been dealt a bad hand. It's just always going to happen again and again and again. So maybe for some of us, we are like Mary, discouraged. Maybe some of us are like Thomas, and we're doubtful. Or maybe some of us are like Martha, and just disappointed. Because God took too long. She had expectation. She knew. She knew what God, she knew what Jesus needed to do. And he didn't do it. In other words, I have an expectation of how things are to be and should be, and now it is not met. We've had many of those in life. We have them all the time. And it gets harder and harder in life because we have things like Amazon Prime now, which shows up to your house in two hours. So our expectations of things, when we want it, should show up within two hours, minimum. And if it don't, all hell breaks loose, right? We have these expectations, and Martha had an expectation, and a valid one, because this wasn't a far reach for Jesus. It's a valid one. Verse 17, you go back to it, it says, When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for how many days? Four days. Now that's important back then because there was a belief that when a person died, the spirit hovered over the body or near the body for three days. Now I don't want to go into a tangent on that about Jesus being in the grave for three days, but let's just kind of take this back for a second and think, okay, so this is their expectation. Three days, you still got a chance. But after three days, no chance. So for Mar- in Martha's mind, Lazarus is, wasn't just mostly dead. He was all the way dead. <laughs> and we can watch that movie all day, guys, because the Princess Bride is so good. He wasn't just dead. He was dead dead. Like, no returning dead. That's it. Done. Day four, over. Right? No chance, nothing. And if you actually read uh, later on in verse 39, in the King James Version, all my King James Version people in the house, nope, perfect, one guy. Uh, So if you read it, it says that Lazarus stinketh. And that's just kind of funny to me. (laughs) There's no point to that other than I thought that was funny. So not only is he dead dead, but he stinketh real bad. And that's where he's at this place. And she's disappointed to the unend because you took too long. Look what Martha says to Jesus. And this is a heavy statement. This shows the depth of her feelings here. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Dang. That's a definitive statement. That's pretty heavy. If only you would have been here, then he wouldn't be dead. Your fault. Your fault. You messed up, Jesus, big time, because now he's dead, dead. He stinketh, too. He's there. He's dead. Disappointed. But notice how she says, if only. If only. And yet for some of us, and maybe even in this season of life, we are disappointed. Our expectations haven't been met with our life, with our relationships with another, or whatever is going on. 
And there's that thing, that, that, that voice that says, well, if only, if only, if only you did this, we wouldn't be in this mess. If only you would have voted for so-and-so, we wouldn't be here. If only you did that. If only we didn't play the Dodgers that way, then we might have won. No, there's no chance. Sorry, buddy. But if only, if only, if only, if only, if only. And it plays in our mind because we're thinking our expectations haven't met. And at the end of the day, we are simply disappointed. We're disappointed. Some of us are doubtful. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are disappointed. We're in a state of disorder. We're in a state of like burial, so to speak. But that isn't forever. Because Jesus isn't just with you. What we'll see here is that he is the resurrection and he takes us from that disorder and reorders things so we begin to grow and begin to see things that are more beautiful. Watch what happens here with Martha because even though Martha is blaming Jesus, she still has this sense of trust. She says in verse 22, but even now, first she says, if only you did this, then that would have happened. But, she says, which is a great word, it's a great transition word because whatever you're saying prior to is now going to switch to the other. It's like when your spouse says, I love you, but get ready for it because it's about to come down. You're about to get struck and it's going to sting a little, right? She's saying, if only you did this, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. You make it happen, Jesus. I know that, that even now in this moment, I trust that God can do something. Even now in my discouragement, even now in my disappointment, even now within my doubt, I believe that Jesus can resurrect my dead self, so to speak, in this season. Even now. I was, um, I was in Vietnam a couple of years ago. We, we run, I, I provide families access to clean drinking water. The, 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 contraption that we use is a filter. The filter lasts 20 to 40 years. $50 gives a family access to clean drinking water for 20 to 40 years. Pfft. What? So now I'm in the water broker, broking, but brokerage business, taking people who have the, the, the resources and we have the solution and bridging the gap to the people who need it. And that's my, my new job now, so to speak, as I look at the whole deal. And so what we do is we go into communities in Vietnam, we go into communities in El Salvador, we go into communities in Uganda, and we provide families access to clean drinking water. There's processes and procedures that we have in place of how we select. There's also processes and procedures of how we create sustainability so that we know that they're continuing to have access to clean drinking water. A few years ago, I got invited to go to Vietnam uh, to do a pilot project. We were invited into the South, with a pastor down there. We don't always partner with pastors or churches. We partner with people who are leaders. Sometimes it's the church, sometimes it's not. And in this instance, it was the church. But it wasn't just a church, it was the underground church in southern Vietnam that he had, he's a local guy, he has 300 underground churches across all of Vietnam. Um, pastor Daniel is native, born, um, and he's had like kind of a bit of divine protection, but there's also some undercover U.S government protection, too, for him being able to do this, as he found out through WikiLeaks. Long story short, I'm sitting with him, and we're hanging out, and I said, here's what I got. I have this filter. How do you see it being used? 
And so we begin to talk back and forth. The government has to be involved with everything that we do. That's just the way it is. They're always involved. They're with us in the distribution. They're with us in the entire process. And they know what these people do. They know they're breaking the law by going out and having churches over here. Now, there is a sense of religious freedom in Vietnam. You can have a church here with every other denomination right there. But you can't have it over here, just right here. And Pastor Daniel says, I don't really care. And then he does it over here. And so the government knows that, which means that there's persecution, right? That's why they're underground. They get beaten. They get thrown in prison. They throw feces on them. They starve them. The whole bit, it happens all the time. And it's been happening for 50 years. So we partner with this organization. And basically, Pastor Daniel and I come up with a, an idea. Um, I thought it was a pretty good idea. And that is that in order for the filters to be distributed, we have to make sure the community wants it. If the community wants it, then we have to let them know there's a maintenance process. And the maintenance process is basically back flushing the filter two to three times uh, every two weeks. And then it keeps it clean. It keeps it flowing well. Now, my daughter knows how to do that. But if you give it a fancy label with a big word, it seems more prestigious, right? So we said, let's call them water engineers. And these water engineers, they're the only ones who can maintain the filters. Sure enough, um, the, US gov the Vietnamese government said, yeah, yeah, that's great. Here are our water engineers. Well, the water engineers just so happen to be every single uh, pastor of the underground church. I don't know. It was kind of random, right? It just kind of happened. Kind of fell in line like that. That's so weird. And their job every two weeks is to go into all the homes and maintain the filter, or we can also look at it and saying, and loving your neighbor. In a tangible way, not just using your words, but by your actions. Fast forward the next year. We show up, and this time, the government welcomes us in their palaces in every province of these big yellow buildings. And we get invited in, and it's like a whole thing. They love us. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Like, we're doing distributions now in their commune. And then we go over and have, like, these fancy meals with food and their alcohol and all this stuff. And it's, trust me, it's not that great. But it is for them, and that's awesome. And I remember I was sitting at the table, and there's a, there's a house church underground pastor and the guy in charge of the province and they're sitting at the table and they're talking back and forth in Vietnamese. I'm sitting there trying to swallow frog soup while watching something interesting happening. Well, after lunch, we get in the car and I ask the translator, I said, so can you ask so-and-so what that was all about? And he said, yeah, sure. And so he starts talking to him and he starts, he's like, he gets a really big smile. He starts talking real fast. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, Sean, what you were seeing there was that in this very province 10 years ago, he was thrown in prison, starved, beaten. They threw feces on him the whole bit for preaching the gospel. 10 years later, right here, right now, what just happened is he was able to share his story about how God has moved in his life to the guy in charge, to the dude who probably threw him in prison, or at least ordered it to happen. And I'm like, dang, that's crazy. Now, as a result of bringing in clean water, the Vietnamese government in these areas has alleviated all persecution on the church. Done. Can you imagine for the years, I mean years and years and years and years and years, of them praying 
God, can you just stop this? The discouragement. Wow, do I really want to go do that? Because I'll probably get thrown in prison. The doubt. Are you even here? We're trying to do your work, but we're still being persecuted. What is happening? The disappointment. I'm doing this for you. And this is what I'm getting? But even now, and I got to witness, and I'm honored to be a part of it, I got to witness the even now, the turning page of their persecution ending and God answering the prayer. Even now, God's denials are not necessarily permanent. Rather, we have to check our expectations at the door, right? And hold it out there and trust him that he knows. Even now. Verse 23, Jesus looks at Martha and says, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And for those of us who study the Bible, eschatology is about things at the last times or the end times or whatever you want to call it. In other words, she's saying, yeah, we all know that he's going to rise when everything is made new. We get that. The last days, that he's going to rise up. And what she doesn't realize is that God is not bound by time, that he can take a future reality and make it a present reality right here, right now. That he can take bits of the kingdom of God in its fullness and allow the kingdom of God to show up in part right here, right now. Not just in her life, but in all of our lives. Because as we'll see here, Jesus isn't just a resurrected God. He is the resurrection. And as far as I'm concerned, when the resurrection walks into the room, dead people don't stay dead. They come alive. Jesus tells her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you trust in this, Martha? Do you trust not just what I can do, but do you trust in who I say that I am? Because I am this. I am the one who takes you from your disorder and reorders it. I am that connecting piece. I will resurrect you within the death that is encountering it in your life and make it new again. And it will become greater and more beautiful and more expansive. Can you, Martha, instead of saying, if only, say, if Jesus... If Jesus is who he is coming to if Jesus is who he says that he is, can you trust in that? Can you trust that he is the resurrection? And Jesus looks at the tomb where Lazarus stinketh, right? Staring at it, and this is what he does. To all of their amazement, Thomas, Mary, Martha, remember, Lazarus is dead, dead. He's not coming back. He's too late. We're gonna get killed we're out here again, Jesus. Why are we even here? All these mixed emotions, and Jesus, in control of it all, says and shouts, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Just a side note, the dude looks like a mummy. It's kind of funny to me. He's like, come out. And he's like, (laughs) somebody help me. (laughs) That's why Jesus tells him, unwrap him. Unwrap the dude and let him go. Now, some of us today, we may feel a sense of death, of 
burial. We feel dead inside. There's something going on in our life that was once there that's no longer there. And my encouragement to you is, to, is just to say this. It's, it's not permanent. It's not. And greater things are in store because Jesus is the resurrection. And that's not just a, a I'm not just kind of flippantly saying that. I'm not just kind of putting it out there for a feel-good thing. It's a reality. It is, and I've encountered it for myself. I know. Because for me, a few years ago, I was pastoring at a church in Costa Mesa, not Calvary Chapel, but I was pastoring at a church in Costa Mesa called The Crossing, and I was in a meeting with some, a couple, and they were sharing some really uh, horrible things that are happening in their life, and everything within me didn't care. In fact, I was kind of just looking at the clock in like the right-hand corner, kind of staring at it, just waiting for them to stop talking so I can give a very bland prayer and get the heck out of there. And I got home that day, and I had a reality check. What the heck is going on, Sean? Because as a pastor, you should, I mean, like, case in point, primary thing, you should care. (laughs) Maybe not care a lot, but just a little bit. And there was, like, no care. Then there was, like, get me out of here. I am done. And so I just had this moment of like, maybe it was compassion fatigue, a sense of apathy. It was this place of where I'm like, okay, God, I, there's, something has happened. I'm dead inside. What do I do? Can you resurrect something within me? Because I don't know if I keep doing this. And I felt like I'm saying, Sean, I want you to make it personal. I'm like, how the heck do I do that? I'm like, I guess I look at what I care about. I love surfing. I'm not sure how that works. Love coffee. That'll make me feel good for a little bit. I love children. The moment a child walks through that door or this door, if my daughter walks through here, I'm sorry, the sermon's over, it's done, because I want to play with them and hang out with them. I can hear them right now, and I kind of want to go do that right now, to be honest. (laughs) Because I love kids. They're the coolest. They show up in a room, and it changes the entire atmosphere. I don't, like... I kind of just sometimes when you have a board meeting or you have like, you know, a meeting's going to be intense, let's just bring a child in there for a second to kind of clear the air. Give us a reality check of life because they're so cool. I love them. I love kids. And so for whatever reason, I took my phone and I started Googling, what are children dying from around the world? If I care about kids, maybe I can look into what they're, what, how they're suffering. And what I found out was like one of the most gut-wrenching things I could ever hear is that children five and under... All around the world, you could take war, AIDS, malaria, you name it, combine it all together, it doesn't even come close what dirty water is doing to children five and under. Take a jumbo jet plane. You all been on a jumbo jet plane, right? Uh, You fill it with children. Imagine that plane crashing every 10 hours. 10 hours goes by, plane crashes filled with children five and under. Another plane. Another plane. We have this weird phenomenon in the United States, actually in the world at large, that when a plane crashes, everyone hears about it. Imagine if we heard about a plane crashing filled with children. We would all be like, whoa, dude, what is happening? For one, why are there kids on that plane? And then it happened 10 hours later, the whole world would stop and say, we've got to solve this problem. That's the world water crisis for children five and under. They're dying from diarrhea. And I looked at that going, okay, I think maybe I could start something there. Maybe I'll do something with that. The only problem is I didn't know anyone. It wasn't personal for me. Well, the next morning I walk downstairs, I go into my living room, and, 
and then I go into the kitchen, and this all sounds like it's really big. It's literally it's like living room, kitchen, <laughs> refrigerator. And here's my refrigerator. There's like a magnet on there. And on the magnet, it says a picture of a little boy named Brian from El Salvador. I looked at the picture. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go visit Brian. I'll start there. I know a kid, maybe, that needs help. We sponsor him through an organization called Compassion. We get, it's like 32 bucks a month. We give him education. Cool, let's do it. So I called the missions pastor at my church at the time and said, hey, when are you going to go to El Salvador? He said, we're going to go in August. I said, great, I want to go. I'm going to take some students with me because at the time I was a high school pastor. I said, cool, let's do it. Cool. So I took some students. We went down to El Salvador. Fast forward to August. I'm in El Salvador. I'm standing in this community. There's a bunch of kids running around. I'm already stoked. This is so cool. And then all of a sudden, I hear this voice saying, Chon! 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 I'm like, who is Chon? And what is going on? And it's Brian running down a dirt hill yelling, Chon! He's saying, Sean! What? And he's saying, Chon, Chon, Chon. And he runs up and he grabs my leg. And my heart just went. Any sense of apathy, any sense of carelessness, gone. As this little boy, three-year-old boy, grabs my leg. And I pick him up and I'm holding him like, oh, my goodness, it's the boy on the magnet. You're real. And you're with me and you know me. And you show me around his house. There's a picture of my wife and I in his room. I'm like, how the heck did you get our picture? There's like letters that we've written him. My wife is a saint. Apparently she did these things. I'm like, that's incredible. It's so cool. I ask his mom through a translator, how's he doing? How's his education? He's great. The sponsorship works. Thank you so much. We love it. Da, 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 da. And then I said, how's his health? And that's when she said, it's not okay. I said, why? I said, he has worms. In fact, all 250 kids have worms. What? From what? From poor drinking water. And in that moment, I felt like God saying, Sean, take care of that child. Sean, take care of your child. My disorder, my chaos, my grave, something shifted in me that day. Jesus, the resurrection, began to birth something in me. Friends, I'm not talking about instant. This has been years now. But it began to grow up and has become this beautiful reality to where now thousands of people have had access to clean drinking water. Not only that, but Brian, who's now like, I think, eight almost, is like my, still like one of my sons. I took him to the zoo. I went down there and took him to the zoo. And the zoo was sad and really horrible because the zoo in El Salvador is so pretty. I was like, dang, feed him, man. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> but we took him there. You know, I love him. And, and he's never suffered with water-related illnesses since then. We went into his community. And we gave his entire city access to clean drinking water. And it just kept growing and expanding and going. And all of it stems from a place of, what the heck, God? What am I doing here? What is going on? And we all encounter those moments. And all I have to say is that the same Jesus that was standing out and yelling, Lazarus, come out of the grave, is here. And he's looking at you and he's extending a hand and he's saying, hey, wake up. I got you. Come out of it. I'm going to pull you out of that pit. I'm going to pull you out of the mud and the mire. And I'm going to set your feet upon a firm rock to stand. I am the resurrection. And you better believe that whatever is dead inside, I'm going to make come to life. And as a result, it's going to become more beautiful, more great, just like a flower.
take hope. Trust him. Because with him, you will be able to breathe again, feel again, see again, hear again, and it's greater and more wonderful and more dynamic and more beautiful, and it begins to spread out to others around you. Who is he? Who is Jesus? He is the resurrection and the life. I don't know how to end it, so I was like, do I pray? That's it? Okay, good, done. I'm going to go sit down.